Chapter twenty eight of the Life of Thomas, Lord Cochrane, tenth Earl of Dundonald, completing the Autobiography of a Seaman, Volume two, by Henry Richard Fox Bourne and others. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Timothy Ferguson, eighteen forty eight to eighteen fifty. The foregoing chapter consists chiefly of extracts from letters addressed to Lord Dundonald during eighteen forty eight. In the present one, free use will be made of his own journal of a tour among the colonies and islands whose interests he was appointed to watch as admiral of the north american and west indian squadron footnote published in eighteen sixty one as a pamphlet entitled notes on the mineralogy government and condition of the british west india islands and north american maritime colonies footnote ends it furnishes much interesting information about the places visited and has also additional interest as illustrating the writer's tone of mind and method of investigation concerning every object that came in his way. The journal describes his occupations during eight months, beginning with the summer of 1849, and includes reminiscences of less systematic visits to the various localities made during the previous year. Leaving Halifax in Nova Scotia on the 14th of July, Lord Dundonald proceeded northwards, past Cape Breton Island, to Newfoundland, the fisheries of which it was part of his duty to protect. He entered St. George's Harbour, the chief resort of the fishermen and traders, on the 27th of July. It is situated, he said, in the angle of a deep bay between Agile and Cape St. George, the town being on the promontory and having deep water close to it. No village can be better placed for the herring fishery, as these gregarious fish at the season of their arrival on the coast enter this harbour, as it were, into the cod of a net, whence they are lifted into the boats by scoops and buckets. With such slender means possessed by the inhabitants, the average catch amounts to 22,000 barrels, but hundreds of thousands might be taken where encouragement afforded. Salmon are also caught in the neighbouring rivers, which are alive with undisturbed and neglected trout. The barrels in which the herrings are packed are said to cost two shillings and sixpence each, and some new regulation requires additional hoops, which to those concerned appears a grievance. It is said that the herrings must realise ten shillings per barrel in order to repay costs and labour, but the best advices from Halifax state that eight shillings only are offered by the merchants. The French, I understand, attend more to the cod fishery. They are not at liberty, if they adhere to the treaty, to draw nets on the shore. There is an American merchant here who deals in truck with the English settlers and obtains from them about a third part of the herrings caught, which he sends to the United States, in such of the enormous American schooners employed in the fishery as enter this bay. The unauthorised British settlers here are said to be very jealous of intruders, as they consider they have an exclusive right to the land and fisheries in their actual possession, and from which all are, by treaty, excluded. They seemed suspicious that the Wellesley might have some motive in entering the bay contrary to their interests. No person whatever came on board, nor did any one come off to the ship, even to offer himself as a pilot, some persons were lately desirous to set up a sawmill, which would have been important, as they obtained all their staves for herring casks, etc., from abroad, but the sanction of the inhabitants could not be obtained. There is no magistrate, or civil, or military authority, no medical man, and perhaps, fortunately, no attorney. Indeed, there is no law, though justice is done amongst themselves after their own manner. There is a neat little church, at which the bishop is now officiating, and the people who are resorting to it seem well-dressed and orderly. On the 30th of July, Lord Dundonald left the harbour to pass round the sharp promontory known as Cape St. George. About midway, he said, 
a remarkable change takes place to the northward of the Table Mountain, where the vertical strata become, in appearance, horizontal, along the whole shore of the projecting isthmus. The colour of the strata is chiefly grey, in parallel layers of varying hardness, as appears from its projections and indentations. I could not, without delaying the ship longer than I wished, procure samples of the strata, but there was no appearance of carboniferous minerals. The same layers were visible in detached places, up to the tops of the hills, which are of considerable altitude, though that is not denoted in the chart. When we rounded Cape St. George on the following morning, the strata, which before appeared parallel, were observed to dip at a considerable angle towards the northeast, and seemed, where sufficiently exposed to view, to be split into large diagonal flakes. There is an island close off the shore, about five miles to the eastward of the Cape, called Red Island, which is of quite a different formation, seemingly red horizontal layers of sandstone of a soft nature, as is obvious from the encroachments of the sea. The peninsula opposite to this island is of considerable elevation, as far as Round Head, whence it gradually lowers to a point about ten miles farther to the eastward. Here the level ground at first seems to be alluvial, but on closer observation, inundated rocks are seen to protrude in flakes dipping into the sea. The bay formed by this promontory is of great magnitude. There are several islands at its mouth, and in the interior, but there being no chart and no motive for entering it, we stood on towards the mountains on the main shore, some of which are very high. In many parts the contortion of the strata and the confusion of all kinds of materials are extraordinary. The sides of the mountains on the shore are clad with moss alone, trees of very stunted growth only appearing in the sheltered valleys. No visible portion of the shore seems capable of producing food for man. From the western coast of Newfoundland, Lord Dundonald sailed due north to visit Labrador. With its natural resources and the neglect of them, he was much surprised. The British possessions in Labrador, he said, extend over a tract of country as great as the northern regions of Russia from St. Petersburg towards the Pole, wherein the Ural Mountains compensate the government for the sterility of the soil. I have often felt surprised at the indifference evinced by the Spanish government towards developing the resources of its possessions, but it is with still greater astonishment I view the supineness of our own government in leaving this vast tract unexplored and its probable treasures undiscovered. Similar complaints were suggested to him by his observations on the eastern side of Newfoundland, to which he sailed down on the 6th of August. We passed several ports, wherein there were numerous French ships and square-rigged vessels dismantled, and schooners and multitudes of fishing boats in full activity in the offing. These schooners and fishing boats are manned by crews of the large French vessels, which are laid up in port, and constitute depots as well as the means of transporting the produce of the fishery to France, an arrangement highly advantageous to the French marine, and which we erroneously abandoned by erecting Newfoundland into a colonial government, thus surrendering our deep-sea fishery entirely, even without rendering the inshore fishery available to the newly erected colony, throughout which it languishes for want of stimulus, or an adequate reward even to induce the impoverished inhabitants of the shore to avail themselves of their small and almost costless boats to catch fish which by reason of the bounties given by france and america are unsaleable with profit in any country in europe it is grievous to observe the difference in the mode of carrying on the british fishery compared to that of the french the former in rudely constructed skiffs with a couple of destitute-looking beings in party-coloured rags the latter in fine well-equipped schooners, which may be called tenders to their larger ships, the seamen uniformly dressed in blue with joinville hats, 
looking as men ought and may be expected to look whose interests and those of the parent state are understood to be in unison and attended to as such at st john's newfoundland lord dundonald made some stay before sailing down to sydney in cape breton then he returned to halifax to go thence for a second visit to bermuda respecting bermuda as we have seen he had much correspondence this island he now said ever since the discovery of the opening in the reefs by captain hurd has been deemed of much naval importance and plans were formulated by the highest military authorities for its defence a naval arsenal also has been designed for the accommodation of a large establishment of ships of war distant islands however cannot be defended on principles which would be the most judicious at home by the erection of forts in all quarters that could be occupied by an enemy it is obvious that under the circumstances of bermuda troops cannot be spared from the parent state permanently to garrison the multitude of forts which on such a principle of defence would be requisite if they could the expense would be enormous and therefore i cannot dismiss this subject without an expression of my satisfaction at the intelligence i had lately received that such extravagant and unavailing system of fortification has been suspended in my opinion it is a great error to imagine that naval officers are unfit to be consulted respecting maritime defences had it not been for so mistaken a notion many hundreds of thousands of pounds perhaps i might say a million might have been saved i unhesitatingly assert that gunboats not only would suffice but are by far the most available and infinitely the cheapest defensive force among the rocks around the island of bermuda the coloured population of this island are a fine race incomparably superior to the generality of the coloured population in the west indies they are accustomed to navigate in their commercial vessels their lives are almost spent in boats and no better crews could be got for the defence of their own island than they would prove themselves to be the existence of this solitary island so far from the continent of north america we further read in lord dundonald's journal is a circumstance meriting the attention of geologists as well as the uniform material of which it is composed it is all of a calcareous nature but differing in condition from any of the other islands of the same substance the strata are exposed in the perpendicular cliffs on the seashore in numerous precipices from a hundred feet to minor altitudes and are composed either of the most minute shells or of parts of shells so triturated that they scarcely indicate their origin in some places however there are laminae containing shells in a far more perfect state all of a white colour with the exception of one which i found on digging a cave of a semicircular shape of a red colour and almost as large as an oyster shell the whole of the substance of bermuda can be burnt into good lime but there is an indurated calcareous stone often containing many perfect shells on the island on which the naval yard is being built which is preferred as more adhesive and better in quality although there are no indications of volcanic products on this island yet it exhibits manifest proofs that volcanic force has raised it from the depths of the ocean in what stage of induration it was at that period is difficult to conjecture the hills and vales throughout the whole extent of bermuda have the stratified calcareous material generally conforming on all sides to the inclination of the surface there are however many situations in which the strata present themselves as manifestly broken by force in the deep cutting in the road which enters into the enclosure around the government house one of these breaks appears at the apex of the hill dividing its sides which here incline towards the centre exposing a wedged formed supplementary part that fills up the interstice in the grounds of the admiralty house curious instances 
of unconformable strata are laid bare in old quarries. These indicate some other cause for their nonconformity than that before assigned, and I am quite at a loss to imagine how these stratified materials could have been placed one above another at such different angles by the action of water or in any other way without appearance of disruption. There are caves upon the island containing large stalactites. There is one on Tucker's Island where these stalactites reach from the top of the cave far below the surface of the salt water it contains. I am not aware of any other instance where similar crystallizations have taken place under the sea water. It seems to lead to the belief that this island was at some time less submerged. There are other caves much larger, and one which goes in so far that the officers who accompanied me did not scramble to its end. This cave is formed by two large masses of calcareous matter, having been reared up one against the other. I have seen some very beautiful crystallizations taken from another cave, recently found in a quarry at Ireland Island, but the absence of petrifications here, for I have never seen one, constitutes a remarkable difference between this formation and that on the island of Antigua, where the roads are almost made with petrifactions. In clearing the surface of the rock, as has lately been done at the quarries, and in laying in the foundation of the new convict barracks, the most irregular formation is exposed. Large holes are found contiguous to each other in the white calcareous rock, which are filled with a substance resembling chocolate in its colour, unlike everything else upon the island. From Bermuda, Lord Dundonald sailed down to Barbados, where he arrived on the 5th of February. The Negroes, he said, who are much more numerous on this island than on any other of the West Indies, appear to be well-fed and cheery in their dispositions. They live in small wooden houses resting on clumps of wood or blocks of stone, a mode of construction which enables them, when tired of or displeased with their locality, to transport them elsewhere. I was told that a street of stone huts, constructed for their use, is almost abandoned, by reason of the immobility of such residences. I consider this locomotive propensity a favourable trait in their character. Behind the barracks we stopped at a hut, on the rising ground, whereon the barracks ought to have been placed, and assuredly I never saw a more contented scene. There was a young negro, and I believe his wife, together with an old woman, perhaps the grandmother of the child she fondled. We made inquiry as to their mode of living, and they showed us green peas, seasoned with red pepper, ready to be cooked, yams and cassava bread, as good as oatmeal cakes. These peas grow on large bushes, and vegetables of all kinds surround their hut. From Barbados, Lord Dundonald proceeded by way of Tobago to Trinidad. On the morning of the 14th of February, he said, we weighed and returned through the dragon's mouth, shaping our course for the great natural curiosity of Trinidad. The pitch lake, which I hoped might be rendered useful for fuel for our steamships, so important in the event of war, as fuel is only obtained at present from Europe. The United States and Nova Scotia are never resorted to, hence, could this pitch be rendered applicable as fuel, our vessels would be supplied when an enemy would be almost deprived of the use of steam in these seas. We arrived at La Brea, and before daybreak on the following morning, we were on the road to the lake, or rather on a stream of bitumen, now indurated, which in former ages overflowed the lake. Indeed, the bitumen beneath this road still seems to be on the move, as shown by curvilineal ridges on its surface, like waves receding from stone thrown into water. The appearance of the lake is most extraordinary. One vast sheet of bitumen extends until lost amidst luxurious vegetation. Its circumference is full three miles exclusive of the creeks which double the extent. 
the bituminous surface is of a dark brown waxy consistence except in one or two places where the fluid still exudes obviously the spring is in full vigour beneath for the whole surface of the lake is formed into protuberances like the segments of a globe pressed together having hollows between filled with rain-water which except in the immediate vicinity of the bituminous springs is inodorous and without taste an extraordinary fact showing that this bitumen is of a nature quite different from that of pyrotechnic mineral or vegetable tar in its dry state it is quite insoluble in water though when charged with essential oil as it exudes from nature's laboratory it imparts a pungent and unpleasant taste a considerable quantity of gas bubbles up through these bituminous springs showing that decomposition is still active amongst the materials whence it exudes some of the recent bitumen has an odour resembling vegetable gum mr johnson the very obliging proprietor of a neighbouring estate had the goodness to cause some of his labourers and a cart to bring samples to the beach means of transport however were so inadequate that we had recourse to digging the more impure pitch on the beach in order to prosecute our trials for its substitution as fuel this bitumen which had flowed upwards of a mile from the lake was combined with earthy and other substances which it had encountered in its course various attempts had heretofore been made to apply the bitumen to useful purposes but without success as we may judge from the total abandonment of those trials and expectations which for a brief period induced its shipment to england with a view to its application to the pavements of london and other cities all excavation has consequently ceased and so low is the estimation in which the bitumen is held that the duty on embarkation is only one halfpenny per ton the nature of this bitumen is very different from that of coal when exposed to a naked fire it becomes fluid and runs through the bars before gas is disengaged or at least before it is raised to a temperature at which it will ignite perhaps it requires more or purer air than enters through the bars of steamboat furnaces a conjecture which seems to be confirmed by the dense smoke speedily produced the plains of trinidad wrote lord dundonald have a fertile soil which simply by clearing the ground is capable of being rendered the most productive in the west india islands for the growth of sugar and whatever can be cultivated in a climate most uniform in its temperature most congenial to tropical plants free from the evils of hurricanes and from all impediments to vegetation i am confident that if the hands of the governor were not bound by restrictions and routine the progress of trinidad would soon verify this opinion lord harris the present governor nobly tendered a portion of his official income in alleviation of the burthens which are so severely felt in the present depressed state of agriculture and commerce but from some cause his lordship's liberal intention was not realised this example would have proved salutary as it must have been followed by reductions throughout other west india islands whose resources are even in a worse state than those of trinidad is it reasonable whilst the ground has ceased to be cultivated because production is unprofitable not only that the land should continue to be taxed at the rate it was in prosperous times but that a duty should be levied on the exportation of its produce is it reasonable that whilst householders can obtain no rent and have no income save the bare means of providing a scanty subsistence they should be assessed at the rack rent of former valuation can any property be more entitled to protection than that of the owners of the soil or of the dwellings they inhabit and yet all these as appears by numerous gazetted sales are sacrificed to the collection of sums the bulk of which is uselessly and prejudicially expended whilst the government of the parent state has alleviated the burdens on the productive classes is it just that taxes on food 
and on all the necessaries of life should be continued throughout the colonies and that even their production should be intolerably burdened with local imposts whilst complaints are loud and true of the absence of all remuneration from the sources which once constituted the prosperity of those now impoverished and oppressed possessions the above observations do not apply exclusively to trinidad but to the whole of the islands which scarcely differ in degree in the causes of ruin which seem irredeemable by any authority except the legislature of the parent state i am persuaded that the chief of the colonial department at home would endeavour to counteract the causes of widely spread and increasing ruin were he in possession of correct information but popular representations of grievances often embodying misapprehensions as to their true origin and accompanied by suggestions of impracticable remedies are denied or disputed in counter-statements by interested officials so that the colonial minister is bewildered and can form no correct judgment from such conflicting statements i hold it to be impossible that the monstrous absurdities and violations of every principle of good government which exist throughout these western colonies could be tolerated an instant were their consequences known and believed by those in power or were they laid before the british public by any person on whose judgment and opinion they could rely can it be credited that even in the island of trinidad not only multitudes of valuable properties are brought to sale from the inability of their owners to pay the fiscal demands but that properties are consigned to the government auctioneer even for so small an assessment as three-fourths of a dollar this is nevertheless the fact the emancipation of the slaves was a glorious act but the rescue of these noble possessions from ruin and the restoration of prosperity to an integral part of the empire would redound to the honour of any one who would successfully advocate the cause of reason and justice not only on the principles of equity but with the less noble view of gain to the parent state as it is certain that the consumption of british manufactured articles has fallen off in these colonies to an extent which has not been counterbalanced by the increase of exports anticipated from the questionable policy of concession to brazil in which i have reason to believe the supply of articles required for the slave trade constitutes a large proportion reflections of that sort occurred to lord dundonald again and again as passing round from trinidad he visited all the principal british west india islands the last at which he called on his way back to halifax being jamaica no doubt he said the generous and noble act by which in the reign of his late majesty slavery was abolished produced a prejudicial change in the economy of the sugar plantations notwithstanding the large amount awarded to the proprietors as the sums so paid were for the most part immediately transferred to mortgages leaving the proprietors in possession of the soil but without the means of paying the expense of its cultivation by free labour this is an evil which time has not remedied and of course in the estimation of those who are in consequence losers furnishes the pretext for imputing to the black population a degree of reluctance to labour far exceeding the reality those who pay a reasonable price for work and are punctual in their payments do not fail to get as many labourers as they require i assert this not from any vague hearsay but from various unquestionable and authentic documents amongst which are the examinations taken by committees of the house of assembly appointed to inquire into the causes and difficulties alleged to exist in the cultivation of the states whilst the poverty of the planters and the destitution of the labouring population is so universal it seems most extraordinary on inspecting the custom-house returns to find almost every article of necessary consumption brought from abroad paying high duties on entry whilst the concessions of small patches of land to the negroes whom there is no capital to employ would if accorded produce food and in a great measure dispense with such injurious importations 
is it reasonable to instruct the negroes in their rights as men and open their minds to the humble ambition of acquiring spots of land and then throw every impediment possible in the way of its gratification i perceive by the imposts and expenses on the transfer of small properties that a barrier almost insurmountable is raised to their acquisition by the coloured population i learned that small lots of crown lands are scarcely ever disposed of though three-fourths of these lands are still in the hands of the crown it is lamentable to see the negroes in rags lying about the streets of kingston to learn that the jails are full the penitentiaries incapable of containing more inmates whilst the port is destitute of shipping the wharves abandoned and the storehouses empty while much if not all of this might be remedied it may be asked how is this to be effected and i answer by justice resolution patriotism and disinterestedness never can this wretched state of affairs be remedied so long as taxes on the necessaries of life are heaped on an impoverished population never can the peasantry raise their heads with a contented aspect whilst every animate and inanimate thing around them is taxed to the utmost not only is there a tax on land and on the shipment of its produce on houses outhouses and gardens on horned cattle and horses but on asses and pigs and the severest penalties are enacted for concealment or suppression in the returns officials are employed for the gathering of pittances which do not defray the expense of collection the harbour dues and exactions are such that no vessel when it can be avoided is brought into the port of kingston consequently though jamaica is admirably situated even more favourably than st thomas the former port is abandoned whilst that of the latter is filled with the shipping of all nations lord dundonald detailed the substance of these opinions in a letter to earl grey the secretary for the colonies i have to thank your lordship lord grey replied for your letter the observations of a person of your lordship's knowledge and experience upon the present state of our colonies are most interesting and useful to me i am aware that there exists much distress in the west indies at present but i am sorry to say i do not see what parliament can do towards removing it beyond freeing their trade from the remaining restrictions by the repeal of the navigation laws which i hope will now be soon accomplished i own i quite differ from your lordship as to the propriety of restoring to the planters the monopoly in the british market they formerly enjoyed and i believe that the permanent interests of these colonies would be injured instead of being advanced by doing so End of chapter 28. Recording by Timothy Ferguson, Gold Coast, Australia.